Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we're doing another in our series of pandemic perspectives with our guest, Karen Fisher, a contributing writer to the Chronicle of Higher Education. Welcome to the show, Karen. Thanks, Christina. I'm glad to be here. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to get your pandemic perspective. To start us off, I wonder if you would please tell us about yourself. Um, sure. I am. Um, where to begin? Uh, I'm a little bit of an accidental higher ed reporter. Um, I came in a little bit through a back door. I uh, was covering politics and I came to the Chronicle, um, gosh, 14 years ago now. Um, to write about politics and policy in the States, um, which is a kind of a great learning experience because it encompasses almost anything that happens at a public university. And um, a couple of years into being at the Chronicle, in the same way, almost accidentally, I started to become the international reporter. Um, I grew up in Canada. I studied abroad. Um, but it wasn't as if that was something I'd sought out to do, but in that way that serendipity um, and the unexpected paths that you can take can be, you know, really the right ones, I guess. Um, You know, I I came into that beat at a time where international student numbers were really growing and um, have been doing it for more than a decade now, and it's been kind of an incredible... um, and for me, incredibly fascinated kind of window into American higher education. Um, you can sort of see the, the budgetary implications of international students, and I learn a lot about that. Um, I learn about pedagogy because how you have to think about shaping your classroom so it's effective for international students, um, you know, is, is particular. And, um, you know, I think even from the, the student perspective, it's been an interesting one. Um, you know, these are our young people and their families who, who in some ways really fully embrace the American dream of, of, of a college degree kind of being the, the promise and the ticket to a future. And so it's been, um, it's not exactly the path that I set on, but it's been a really interesting one to, to kind of walk along. When you were in high school, were you dreaming of going to college in the States or did it kind of take you by surprise that you found yourself at an American college? Um, no, I, I looked at both Canadian and American colleges, but, um, I was in, I I think I'd always thought about, about going to, to both. And do you feel that perspective gives you empathy and sort of a window in, um, for the students that you talk with now? Um, yes, no. I mean, I don't want to pretend that, um, my experience was, was that, um, you know, I was much more familiar with an American education. You grew up in Canada. You watch American television. Um, you know, most sort of cultural things are the same. The college application process is is somewhat different, but it's also not entirely foreign as well. And so, um, so I think it. Uh, you know, it's not. It's not. It wouldn't be fair for me to compare my experience with somebody who's coming from you know, China or India or Vietnam or, you know, Nigeria to come to, 
to an American campus and, and you know, all the challenges they face. Um, but I mean, I think at the same time, uh, in my life, I've been in a lot of situations in which I felt a little bit of an outsider and I felt like I was kind of crossing, um, you know, different uh, boundaries and borders, um, both literal and imaginary. And um, so I think it's probably more that kind of experience of um, of just not always being sort of 100% comfortable for, for a host of reasons, not sort of, not just culturally, but lots of reasons um, that I think makes me perhaps empathetic to the experience of international students. And I think probably just makes me um, empathetic as a, a journalist in general as well. And so you mentioned that you've been working for the Chronicle for about 14 years. If you could take us back to uh, February of 2020, and March of 2020, how were you typically researching and filing your stories at that time? And when and how did that change? Um, so for me, I would say COVID began to change things a little bit earlier. Um, because as I said, I'm the international reporter for the Chronicle. And for the first, I would say about six weeks or so, um, COVID was really an international story. It was, you know, taking effect and, and, and causing enormous disruption first in China and then in Italy and then throughout Europe. And so um, for a long time, nobody, nobody else was covering it as a topic. Um, and so while it wasn't taking up most of my time, I was still... Um, doing a lot of my regular reporting. I do a lot of um, well, longer features. Um, I was just finishing up a piece, not on the international beat, but one looking at, um, at the socioeconomic, uh, socioeconomic divides in higher education. So, um, so a little bit of my time was kind of beginning to focus on, you know, colleges shutting down travel to China, colleges worrying about researchers or students who were stuck in China. And then as it, um, as the pandemic spread, you know, there, Italy um, and Western Europe in general are the top, is the top destination for uh, American students going abroad. And so what was going to happen with those students? And um, so those were the, the kind of first, um, the first changes. And then it actually, the, the sort of coronavirus beat began to take over a little bit more of my time. And I started to write about Kind of the hypotheticals about what would happen if um, if the pandemic came here. So, um, you know, it was kind of an interesting path to it, becoming kind of more and more and more of my daily professional life, and of course, then of my personal life and all of our personal lives too. So, would you say in December of two thousand nineteen, it was already something that you? were tracking, how soon did you start tracking it even before it showed up in your articles and before it changed how you did research? Um, I came back from China just before um, the winter holidays of 2019, so probably like December 22nd or 23rd. And within probably a couple of weeks, so quite soon after the new year, um, I was talking 
again, not really so much in a, in a professional way or for professional coverage so much as um, I have a lot of colleagues, a lot of sources over the years who work in China at universities there or who teach there or who, um, you know, who advise students, um, some parents of, of students I've known over the years. Um, and, and so it was starting to affect their daily lives. Um, but even in China, you know, if you think back, um, you know, it, it was sort of localized first in Wuhan and then it spread. And so um, I would say I probably first started reporting on it um, towards the, the Lunar New Year, which was, I think, about the third week in January. And that is a big holiday time there. Oh, huge. I mean, it's uh, people say it's the largest sort of annual migration of people any place in the world because I mean, it's kind of like... Um, like New Year's and Thanksgiving in America all thrown into one. You know, it's a huge family holiday too. And I know there was one professor um, who I spoke with briefly uh, who had come to America uh, to see family because there is quite a large school break during that holiday. And then our shutdown started happening and she couldn't go back to work in China. She was stuck here. I mean, the travel... The travel restrictions, um, I mean, about that same time at the end of January, um, the the American government put restrictions on travel. Um, so nobody could come from China who wasn't a citizen. But um, I think it also had the, uh, the impact of just kind of limiting flights and flights were um, for le- were less common and they were also incredibly costly. And so, I mean, I... I don't know how long your your professor was stuck here, but um, you know I had some students who were start trying to go home beginning at the start of the the closures in March, who who didn't make it back to to their homes in China and elsewhere actually until the summer because um, you know they were paying these exorbitant airfares and then at the last minute the um, the flights would be canceled. And so I know of students who tried to go home three or four or five times who who it took them a, a long time to get back. So I hope your professor uh, your professor got her, her issues resolved as well. It was a rather complicated uh, story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but my understanding is that it was, um, you know, not unique to her. People, each individual was having to figure out their own unique pathway back. There wasn't sort of a set avenue they all could count on. Yeah, and I think a lot of the perception was that um, the students who were studying here from abroad um, went home, and some of them did. They kind of uh, went through a a crazy gauntlet of, um, you know, navigating uh, the, the, um, you know, airports during the pandemic and flights and um, but a lot of them actually stayed. Um, estimates are as many as nine out of ten of them um, in the early days of the pandemic remained in the U.S. And I think, you know, as some travel restrictions eased and some flights became more common, um, many of them went home. But still, I think a majority of the, the students, the international students who were here um, at the beginning of the pandemic, now more than a year ago, actually uh, remained in the U.S. And, um, you know, which on some some counts is is helpful, you know, especially as they were taking remote classes. Um, and in some ways, was really challenging for them because they were, 
you know, so far from their families during the middle of this incredible crisis. And the visas that they have restrict what type of employment they can have while they're in the States. So that was another difficulty as well. Yes, that was something that when I um, when I talk with college administrators who work with international students, um, that they hadn't really even considered as a, um, at least initially many of them are not considered it, you know, as, as a, a real problem. I mean, they were much more concerned about um, making sure all these students had housing. I mean, many of them do, but, you know, for students who live on campus, um, when campus is closed, um, what was going to happen with those students? And obviously it's not just international students. There are other students who were unable to, to go home as well. Um, but, you know, they were having to first kind of make those emergency um, accommodations. But yes, is, you're, you're right. The, the way that student visas work, they say that except in a few instances in which um, in which the work is directly tied to a student's um, academics of their, their curriculum, um, students can only work on campus. And of course, you know, a lot of campus jobs really, really dried up when, um, when campus is closed. I mean, you don't need the students working in the dining halls or shelving the books. Um, and in, in many cases, campuses wouldn't have let those students come on to, to campus anyhow, you know, one for safety reasons. And so, um, you know, and a lot of students had expected to go home over the summer and have summer jobs. And that also was something they were unable to do. And so, you know, I, I have known of a number of colleges that started emergency funds um, for students. Um, and, you know, ended up pointing a lot more of their international students to places like food banks um, than they had they'd ever imagined them, them that they would have to do. So for the students who were here on their visas, they, they could safely stay, but the pandemic has sort of weirdly straddled more than one school year. And so there, there were the students who, during the pandemic, accepted for fall of uh, 2020, but couldn't get visas to come here. Now it's we're taping during May of 2021 and decision day already came. So there's now another crop of students who will be asking for visas in hopes that they can come in person for this fall. What is your sense of how the visa situation is going to work out for the students who are already students uh, but stayed abroad and now want to actually come to campus and the new students who have just accepted? Um, well, so it, the, the, the picture is looking considerably brighter today um, in early May than it did um, even just a week ago um, for students. Uh, there was, I think I mentioned earlier, um, you know, a, a limitation put on travel um, from a number of countries um, back early in the pandemic. Um, China being the most notable because it's the largest, um, the largest source of international students. And um, except for Europe, which um, there was a special exception for students, um, those bans on travel applied to all students. Um, and so you could come if you were from China to the U.S., but you had to kind of go in a roundabout way and quarantine for a couple of weeks in a third country. And so that was pretty complicated. Um, and then the other problem was that um, consulates have been closed. Um, 
you know, the last time I looked about only about 40% of consulates were kind of back up and running and sort of with regular visa processing. And so um, I think one of the, the challenges is people are now, um, so just this week, in fact, the consulates in China opened. And so people are hopeful that they will get visas and be able to come to the U.S. Um, but that's going to be a big logistical administrative hurdle for the U.S. government. Um, right now, we're at the beginning of what are the three biggest months for student visa processing um, from China alone. Uh about 75,000 student visas get handed out in May, June, and July to students. Um, and so if you, you know, as you suggested, sort of imagine we've got two groups of, of students. I mean, that could be as many as 150,000 student visas that have got to get processed in just, a, a, you know, a, a few months. And so that's a big challenge. And then um, one of the other big challenges is, of course, that we all know, unfortunately, what's been happening in India um, which has been really tragic. And, the you know, it's obviously the, the real incredible soaring rates of coronavirus infections have affected all of society there. And they've also closed consulates. And so now India students there are kind of thrown into a lot of uncertainty. And it's the second, after China, the second largest source of international students. So those students aren't really sure what's going to happen with their visas. But of course, they're, on the other hand, they're also really worried about a lot of day-to-day -day things um, beyond their pieces as well. And so it leaves the colleges um, unsure about what's going to happen here in America. So are they making contingency plans based on various models of how fall 2021 might turn out? Yeah, I would say they're making contingency plans and contingency plans on the contingency plans. I mean, there's so many uncertainties that's really kind of thrown out the whole um, the whole model that colleges have to forecast their 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 first year classes. Um, you know, they they had both on the undergraduate and graduate level um, huge numbers of deferrals. So, will those students want to come? Um, and what will that mean? Um, so it could be that colleges could have, you know, these enormous bulging, you know, freshman classes. Or they also worry that they're, at least, again, when we're talking about international students, that there could still be whole groups of students who, you know, because of these visa backlogs, just can't still make it in time. And so maybe their, their numbers will be down. They, they really don't know. Um, and there's even uncertainty about applications. I mean, in general, international student num application numbers have been up, but they were down from a place like China. And that's that adds a lot of uncertainty and worry. And so, I mean, in terms of their contingency plans, I mean, colleges are still having to think about what if international students, at least some of them, are, are still taking classes um, virtually. How will that work? You know, this year, every, you know, most colleges have, you know, most of their classes operating at either an online or hybrid form. Will they continue to do that if it's just a handful of their students who can't make it? And what will that mean for, for international students? Um, and then there are some, some colleges that had just really large groups of international students overseas um, for the past year. And they're thinking about maybe some of them will want to continue to do that or they won't be able to come. And so they've 
they're they're actually having programs on the ground where they deliver their their education, their U.S. you know first year program, but to students who are say in China or in Europe and who aren't here. And NYU was one of the schools that was able to do that quite well. Can you talk about their program in China? Sure. Well, NYU has a bit of an edge <laughs> because they have they have a full campus in Shanghai. Um, but they also just have an enormously large group of students from China. I think about half of their international students are Chinese. And so they had several thousand Chinese students who um, couldn't make it to New York this year. And so um, they gave those students the option to, to start their, their NYU experience um, in Shanghai. They had so many, they had to rent another uh, their building because they couldn't accommodate them on their campus. Um, and so now they've got those students and they're hoping, of course, that most of them can, can come to New York in this new year, but or in the new academic year. But um, but they're also making plans. And so they were, you know, when last I talked to them, which was last week, they, they were still planning to go ahead and um, have that kind of backup space in case they, they had to accommodate a lot of the Chinese students. And their, their theory being that, yeah, it wasn't really the same as being in New York, but you could take your NYU classes and be with your NYU classmates and you know, get a little bit of a sense of, you know, imperfect, but a sense of what would it be like to be, you know, doing your first year at NYU. And for you, you're doing all of your stories remotely, working with your contacts remotely. Are the contacts and sources that you're relying on ones that you built over the previous 14 years? How are you continuing to do this work? Um. Yeah, it's been a real learning experience um, for me, and it's been really, really different. It certainly wasn't the case that the Chronicle would um, send me to a campus or abroad anytime I wanted to do a story. But um, over the years, I'd done just a ton of stories where I'd almost embedded myself in a place and, um, you know, spent days and sometimes weeks over the course of a year to report a story. And I mean, as you say, that just wasn't possible this year. Um, I did, I think, have a bit of a advantage um, in that um, I both had longstanding sources, but I'd also been been reporting on, on this beat for a while. And so I, even if I hadn't talked to people and they hadn't been my sources, I wasn't they might know my name. I wasn't entirely, I think, unfamiliar to everybody. Um, but it's also been a challenge. And, you know, I feel like I'm missing out on some of that, that kind of color and the rapport that you build with people by, by sort of hanging around and, you know, becoming kind of part of the environment for people. They just become comfortable with you. And, and that, I think, goes a long way. And I tell a lot of my stories in kind of that human-driven sort of way. Um, on the other hand, I, I um, I mean, I, I used things like Skype and 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 Zoom fairly frequently because you know I do a lot of overseas calls and that's just often cheaper and more reliable. But um, there has been a, been ways in which um, I don't know you can build sort of a 
a strange sort of intimacy through through Zoom. And it's not quite the same. But I mean, for example, this year I did a story in which I um, I followed, well, actually I followed a, about a dozen students, but I ended up writing about two of them um, through their, their year of the pandemic um, or through their first year of the pandemic, unfortunately, I should say. And one was an international student who was here in the U.S., um, far from her family. And the other was um, a student who had returned um, over the summer to China and was taking all of her classes in her senior year from, from her home. And we were able to, you know, spend hours on Zoom talking about her life and um, getting a, I could get a sense of what was going on with her family and her classes and what she was doing in her spare time and practicing her ballet. And um, no, was it the same as being able to be in person with her? Definitely not. But there was this sort of like uh, this way that I could, you know, bridge thousands of miles and, and be there and, and get a, a little bit of a sense of her, you know, very abnormal year taking her classes in the middle of the night from China. That article was called The Stranded, I believe. And it actually had some uh, photos to go with it. Did the students arrange to do the photos themselves? How do you how do you get photography of a subject that you can't go meet? <laughs> oh, I mean, it's always complicated and certainly especially complicated during the pandemic. Um, the students did not arrange the photos. Um, the Chronicle doesn't have any staff photographers, but we do have our, our great photography editors have connections with really terrific photographers um, all around the world. And we've always had really great photographers in China. And so one of the the things that was um, it was actually easier to arrange for the photos for the student in China in that story than for the other student who was in um, at college in New York State because the, for the student at college in New York State, like many colleges, um, you know they were they were really limiting who could be on campus and they had all sorts of social distancing rules and it was just very difficult, um, you know we were very lucky. Um, the college worked with us a great deal, but um, it was still a little hard to get those those kinds of portraits. Whereas the student in China, and, you know, now in China, the infection rates are so low, case counts are so low, that it was, my, the student thought nothing of, um, I mean, I, I think she was, as most people are a little weirded out by having a photographer kind of follow her around. And he spent a he flew out from Beijing and spent a, a day with her and a night. So she's up all night, so taking her classes and hung out with her family. And they, um, I mean, I think they felt self-conscious about it, but they, they welcomed the photographer into their home and uh, kind of, uh, you know, in some ways I'm a little jealous because he got to have that experience firsthand and that, that I never did. But um, but I, you know, it, and I think they, if you see the the photos, they, they kind of get at that intimacy of, of the, the experience. Do you find that students are talking to you in a slightly more intimate way because we have reduced personal interactions during the pandemic? Does that change the nature of their willingness and need to talk? Hmm. You know, that's a terrific 
question. Um, I certainly think that there are some students, especially last spring, where um, where I was talking with some students who were um, here, they were perhaps the only students or one of a handful of students on their, their campuses. They were far from their families. Um, and they were, you know, they were fearful. I mean, both on the health front, but also, um, you know, almost three quarters of international students in the U.S. are Asian. And with the rise in anti-Asian racism, I think they, they also um, maybe more acutely than in the past worried about those kinds of incidences when they went out of their homes and interacted with people. Um, so maybe they were <laughs> they were more willing to talk to me. That said, um, you know, and I'm always really grateful for this. Um, you know, students have always been, you know, it can take a little while to get to know them, but they've always been um, really generous with their time and with sharing their experiences and their perspectives. So, yeah, it's a really fascinating question, Christina. I'm going to think a little bit more about that, as a matter of fact. Um, I'm glad that you brought up the topic of anti-Asian racism because it it has come to the forefront of the news and it's getting more American attention, even though it has always been a problem. For even some Americans, it's news that we do have this. For students uh, who are still at home and they're watching this, they're watching this from their home in Korea, they're, watch, they're learning about this on social media accounts while they're at home in China. How is this affecting concerns that they and their families have about sending them to America for school? Um, I think it's something that colleges are quite worried about. Um, in general, issues of safety, and that can be construed pretty broadly, um, but issues of safety are quite important to, to students and their families, and as you might imagine, particularly to parents who are sending their, their children to the other side of the world to, on their own. Um, and so I think there's a sense that um, the anti-Asian racism could be, could be seen as um, kind of one more complicating factor um, along with, you know, the U.S. does, I think, have a, you know, higher rates of crime than a number of um, the countries that, um, that some of these students come from, but more in more particular, what it does have is um, uh, more incidents of, of, of gun violence and particularly of, of mass gun violence. And those are the kinds of things, as you might imagine, make the headlines um, both here and, um, and overseas as well. And so I think there is some concern that the anti-Asian racism is going to be seen as sort of part of this broader question of of safety and security, and to the extent that students are evaluating whether to go to the U.S. or to go to other countries that have better track records on safety, um, could this be something that um, that is an additional headwind? Um, that said, I do think that there's something very particular about um, the increased awareness and visibility of anti-Asian racism. Um, because I think in some ways it seems more personal and more directed at international students um, 
even if you know nobody's singling them out specifically as international students, they they are obviously being targeted because of their race. And that's just a really complicated thing in general because so many of these students are coming from a place where they haven't they haven't seen themselves through a racial lens and that's not the way that they think of their identities. And so now not only are they having to grapple with the fact that um, in the American context, this is their identity, but then they're also having to, to grapple with the fact that and this identity might also, you know, single you out for discrimination. And I think that that's, you know, that's a lot of, for students to kind of handle. You mentioned in a recent article that um, while colleges hadn't typically included this as part of international student orientation, they will now directly tackle issues of race and racism in international new student orientation. Do you have a sense of how they plan to go about that or or if it's um, still um, still something that they're working out? Um, I think both, kind of. Um, uh, yeah, so I think historically, for a number of reasons, institutional, structural, um, although we talk about the diversity of, of sort of cultural diversity and the diversity of viewpoints that international students bring to campus, um, on a lot of campuses, the international student programming has been very separate from the kind of diversity um, education and diversity and uh, equity and inclusion programming that happens on campus. Um, I think that that if there's maybe a silver lining to these this last year, um, and not just obviously the anti-Asian racism, but the Black Lives Matter protests and the the, the death of George Floyd. I mean, I just think that it's brought um, brought these questions of of, of anti racism education um, and and more to the forefront, including for international students. Um, in terms of how colleges are approaching it, I think it's a little bit all over the the board. As a matter of fact, um, you know, I just I just did a um, a webinar with um, with some campuses, I think, that maybe have a little bit of a head start on doing some of this programming. And it was just incredibly well attended. So it's clear to me that there's oh, there's a real hunger and desire for dealing with it. And so I think um, it may be about bringing in partners, recognizing um, who are the other, you know, everything dealing with international students can't always be the the, the sole responsibility of the people who run the international office. So how can they form, form partnerships and to, to, you know, have sessions at international student orientation, for example, focused on kind of the language about racism um, and diversity, which not all international students are going to be familiar with. Um, I think there's also sort of talk about ongoing programming. A lot of the programming, um, in the last year has been a little bit reactive. You know, last summer, for example, last spring and last summer, um, after George Floyd's death, in recent weeks after the the, the verdict in his murder trial, um, manslaughter trial. Um, but I think colleges are looking to see how can we build in um, 
programming, say, weekly or monthly and chats to do this? How can we have more open um, uh, uh, sort of town hall-like um, experiences? How can we bring together um, student mentorship where you're having international students and diverse students working together? How are you bringing, um, uh, you know, um, how are you how are you making sure that there are sort of safe spaces um, in terms of your mental health um, resources so that international students who are trying to process all this this stuff can and not just the racism but the pandemic and just everything that that's that's also sort of stressful about being so far away from home for college you know how can you know are there places where they can can kind of deal with these issues where there's kind of some cultural nuance and understanding and the, the mental health services. So, and so I think colleges are working with a whole host of, you know, working across campuses with the international offices, partnering with, with all these different kinds of, of, of partners to, to, to be more nuanced in their programming for students. You've mentioned that a, a large portion of uh, international students uh, studying in the United States come from China. As many as one in three international students here are from China. Um, and you mentioned in one of your recent articles that the vaccine program currently in China is not um, any of the three vaccines that we're using here in the United States. And so colleges are trying to find out from the CDC, do we accept that vaccine? Do we know about it? It seems to add another layer of othering onto the students that they may come here and we may say, we don't recognize your vaccine. Yeah. I mean, vaccines along with visas and, um, you know, just as we were talking about before, the availability of air of flights. I mean, those are all these kind of um, these like practical parts of, you know, bringing students back to campus from overseas that colleges are really going to have to figure out over the next um, the, the next couple of months. I mean, as we're talking now, about 200 colleges have announced that they, um, they're going to mandate vaccines, um, but they're all still kind of in the dark about what that's going to mean for international students. Um, you know, you mentioned China, and yes, in China they have access to vaccines, but they are pretty much homegrown. Um, and so, will will colleges, um, will both the CDC and the local health authorities recognize them? Will colleges have to revaccinate those students? Should you know, it's revaccination safe? We don't know that. Um, and then there's there's students. I mean, yes, China's the largest group of students, but there's students who come from. Lots of other parts of the world where um, where something like two or three percent of the population is vaccinated, and how how are we going to handle those students? And I think colleges in general are pretty committed to vaccinating them, but it does sort of um, it does raise all kinds of again logistical challenges of having them get back here in time to get vaccinated and then quarantine after their vaccinations, and, and so that's it's you know. It's another kind of hurdle, another kind of wrinkle that colleges are going to need to work through. And right now they don't have, unfortunately, that kind of guidance from the CDC or other health authorities. It sounds like flexibility is the only way to manage the fall semester, the upcoming <laughs> fall semester. Just, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> just a total flexibility as to what the start day for any class is, what move-in day is, what... Um, 
what your orientation is going to look like. Just the whole first semester is is pretty much going to be a moving experiment of multiple parts. I guess we've all kind of gotten used to that, <laughs> but you know, we, we're all kind of used to operating in a an sort of atmosphere of uncertainty now. But yeah, I mean, you know, as I said, I, I feel like um, definitely colleges are trying to make contingency plans and figure that out. Um, when it comes to international students, I also think they're learning a little bit from from what they were f- kind of forced into this past year, and I think it's um, it's it's opened colleges up to you know some colleges were already doing this, but delivering more of what they would do in the kind of orientation period, for example, doing that ahead of time before students get here through the virtual formats, and so um, I think. We're going to also see flexibility, but also flexibility in kind of how all this stuff happens and how it gets delivered to students as well. I've noticed a lot of professors have changed due dates to best by dates. They have a preferred date they would get it in. Other uh, professors are offering a range. You know, this is due during the month of fill in the blank um, to try to accommodate uh, the enormous amount of stress that students are under trauma students may be facing, uh, whether culturally or personally or both. Um, And just the overall uh, intellectual fatigue people are feeling, that it's it's hard some days just to do what would have been a normal day for you two years ago. You just don't have the ability to concentrate or to predict how well you will concentrate. Are you, is your sense that that will become quite, normal for face-to-face instruction as well? You know, that's one of the things I really wonder about too. Um, you know, how much of, um, how much we, we and by we, I mean colleges and, and professors, how, how much kind of the, the things that, um, that is how, how much what has happened over the past year gets kind of incorporated into um, the, the new normal for, um, for, for academic courses and for delivery of courses. I mean, I've, I've certainly talked with a lot of professors, and this is not specific to their international students, actually, but who said to me kind of a variation on two things. One is that um, I, uh, the, the, that again, we're taking classes through Zoom and we're, you know, kind of in each other's spaces all the time now. And, you know, they said to me, I just am getting these glimpses of my students' lives that I never had before, whether they're, you know, they're intentional or, or just, you know, caught, you know, as they, they turn the camera on their, their computer. But, you know, I'm getting a little bit of a sense of what the day-to-day like is like for them. And then, you know, as you said a moment ago, um, no one, no, very few people and the very few lucky people are kind of immune from this fatigue and this, of languishing and the just a relentlessness of this past year. And so I do think that there is professors, I mean, I think professors in general have a lot of empathy, but I think certainly they, they, they kind of feel, I've heard a lot of professors say, you know, I feel like I know what my students are going through right now. And so um, I am really interested to see, and I know um, some of my chronicle colleagues are really looking to see, um, kind of how pedagogy changes based on the pandemic. But this almost seems like more, in some ways, more basic than that and how how just we all relate to one another, um, what that's going to be like after the pandemic. And, and um, I, I don't, 
I don't know that I, my crystal ball is is very clear on this, but but I do think it's a really um, fascinating question. And while there's a lot to regret about this past year, that seems just to me as a human being, not necessarily a reporter, to be perhaps like one of those there's there's few things that would be um, good news, I guess, out of out of what's been such a tough year. I think in so many ways it's forced people to drill down to what's important. Um, and I, my sense is that campuses are doing that kind of reckoning as well. What is an important use of campus space? How do we reconfigure and support that? There are changes in pedagogy. I was just in a virtual a conference where professors were talking about you know, the lessons of teaching virtually and what they're going to keep and what they're going to uh, discard to make a more student-facing pedagogy. Um, but campuses are are facing these physical use challenges as well. Um, so it seems a, a two-part problem. Do you have a sense um, from talking with your colleagues at The Chronicle um, about how the physical use um, problem is going to be drilled down to what is really important? You know, I think there's, um, I don't think there's probably one, one answer for that. Um, I mean, I know... We, um, I think one of the things become clear is that um, students want to be back on campus, but what that means isn't always like we don't. We're not always talking about the same thing when we say that. And so, you know, when students want to be back on campus, that doesn't necessarily mean that they want to take 100% of their classes on campus, for example. Um, and so, what will that look like, and how? how will that kind of get baked into the delivery of courses? And then, you know, are there some courses that are more effectively delivered in an online format? Um, you know, I've heard people say both at once that this will be the end of the lecture or that the lecture will only be a virtual thing um, into the future that, you know, you can just accommodate a single professor on Zoom can accommodate more people, more students in a entry level, inter, you know, course than than they could in um, you know, in a a, a large um, lecture hall. And so, what does that mean for the lecture? Um, what do what do students value? And I mean, and I think the pandemic affects that, but it's also, you know, we're going through this kind of generational shift of students too. And what do those students value and what's an important thing for them? And I don't know that anybody, <laughs> I don't know that anybody has an answer yet, but I think it's going to be really fascinating to see kind of what gets adopted and adapted into the fall. If we can approach it with curiosity and with opportunity. Um, yeah, I think so. Just even questions like, can you, even have triples anymore. I know when I was in college, people dreaded triples and now it feels decidedly unsafe um, to put that many people in a small space. Um, so questions about roommates and um, dining options. And it seems like there's going to be uh, so much that has an opportunity to change for the better when students wanna go back to campus. Back has a very different meaning. <laughs> What do they want to go back to and what, what do they need to have changed so that they can be back on campus? Yeah, and is back the right word, right? You know, is it, you know, or I think there's been a lot of talk about like the return to what was, but I think you you might be correct. And 
assuming that um, that that things will will it'll be a new normal. That that yes, we'll you know there are some things I think that people have have missed greatly and and want to, to get back to. Um, but I think that there are some things that that everybody's been kind of forced to reckon with that might not, you know, be the most effective way of, of doing something. Um, you know, campus just space, and I have colleagues who are certainly um, much more expert at this than I, but, you know, the distribution of space and how we use it and when we use it on campuses doesn't always, if you step back, make the most sense. And so, you know, just do some of those things change in part because we continue to have kind of either social distancing imperatives or that need for flexibility. You know, I think people being mindful of the fact that that they've had to kind of go through it. I mean, if, I, I think a real, and, and use, you know, sort of comparative way to look at this is, you know, um, one of the theories about why the pandemic um, was not as, um, devastating in parts of Asia, um, some of the theory is that it comes out of the fact that, you know, East Asia, you know, Hong Kong in particular had to go through SARS and how terrible that was and how then it became, you know, mask wearing became kind of, you know, you wouldn't necessarily see people on a daily basis wear masks, but if they felt ill or there was the worry about something being particularly contagious, then they would sort of like turn on a dime and, you know, people would very quickly adopt that. And so, you know, I think you said the word earlier, flexibility. I mean, what kinds of ways will we build into, into our campuses that kind of flexibility so that maybe we don't all have to exist in this, you know, weird Zoom-like, you know, environment in the future, but that we can be more more flexible in, in how we teach and how, you know, we live campus lives. What do you hope this conversation sparks? Hmm. That's a, an interesting question. Um, I mean, sort of selfishly, I, I hope that, um, that, you know, people are, as people are thinking about the, um, the ways in which this has been a difficult year or 18 months, uh, you know, that they think about international students. Um, I, you know, this is not about <laughs> comparative um, measures of, of of burden, but I think it has been a, a tough year. And, you know, I, I kind of feel for students who have, um, who have one way or another had to be kind of away from, partic- you know, strong support networks. And, you know, I think, you know, as you said, we'll all have to have a little bit more compassion and understanding um, into the next year. And um, I think our international students aren't always the most visible group of students on campus. So to the extent that 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 compassion and understanding, you know, can be extended to them and, you know, maybe people can pause and sort of think about those students and say, hey, how's How's this past year been been for them? I mean, I think that um, having people see them and understand a little bit about what they go through and that they're they're here and present on our campuses, um, I think that matters a lot to the students I talk with. So, I mean, I guess 
you know, raising the profile of this this particular issue. I mean, I, again, there's lots of things that we all need to grapple with in this post-pandemic um, time, but maybe that could be one more thing for people to to wrestle with as well. And what gives you hope? Um, I think our, our students, both our international students and our American students are, are really resilient. And um, again, you know, this, this year hasn't been easy for anyone, um, but, you know, some, sometimes they, and again, I, we all know, you know, the instances of mental health and, and obviously the impact the pandemic has had on that, but, but I do think that students are really resilient. And, you know, when I talk with them um, about the next year, I mean, they, 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 they seem to have a lot of optimism and hope and, you know, are, are excited for whatever this, you know, this new college year looks like. Um, although, you know, obviously there are a lot of uncertainties about that. So, um, yeah. So I think, uh, Seeing it through their eyes makes me feel a little bit more optimistic as well. And my final question is, of the changes that you've had to make in how you do your work because of the pandemic, what change do you want to take forward with you? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I mean, in some ways, none. I mean, I've, I used to travel a couple of times a month, and I barely left my apartment um, in, 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 in a year and a half now. I'm looking forward to that. Um, I mean, I, as much as I, I think we all curse Zoom, um, and I certainly don't want to have to do every, every single interview that way. I do think it is, as I was saying before, a little bit of a, an interesting window into um, people's lives and used judiciously um, can, can kind of help um, further, further my reporting. Karen Fisher, thank you so much for being here today and giving us your pandemic perspective as a contributing writer for the Chronicle of Higher Education. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.